surround yourself with the best team, get the best team in early and people who can scale what's needed in a company going from zero to five, five to 25, 25 to 200. There's very few people that can scale from the head of marketing or the head of whatever from that to multi-hundred millions. But there are people who you need in the future that you don't have now. You need to just constantly think about that. So that's the number one big bucket. This is Evolve CPG, a community of purpose-driven brand leaders who not only believe in better, but actively pursue it. That's better products, better brands, better leadership for a better world. Thanks to you, our listeners, this podcast is now ranked in the top 10% of all podcasts globally. Let's not stop there, though. If you like our show, please take a moment to leave us a rating or review and share your favorite episodes with your network. The more people we reach, the more good we can bring about in this world. If you work in the industry, you can also join our online community where we're going further, faster, together at community.evolvecpg.com. I'm your host, Gage Mitchell, founder and creative director of Modern Species, a sustainable brand design agency helping better brands grow and scale their impact. On this episode, we're speaking with John Foraker, co-founder and CEO of Once Upon a Farm, about his lessons learned from scaling Annie's Homegrown, how he came to partner with actress Jennifer Gardner on a nutrition-focused kids' food brand, and why he keeps weaving impact into the DNA of the brands he builds. Hi there, I'm John Foraker. I'm the CEO of Once Upon a Farm. And Once Upon a Farm is a, a fresh kid nutrition brand that makes foods for babies all the way up through kids, so baby food through kid snacking, and we're, we're available throughout the United States and Canada. Awesome. Really excited to have you on the show, John. Obviously, I've followed multiple companies you've been involved in and been purchased many of them. I don't have any kids right now, so I haven't purchased Once Upon a Farm, but I'm excited to learn more about it. With that said, as I was diving into some of your background before this interview, I noticed that you went to college thinking you would want to be a farmer. So I'm just curious, where did that passion for food come from and why a farmer? (laughs) My family is a farming family in Northern California and almonds and rice. And so when I was very young, I was 10 years old driving a pickup truck, you know, out of the ranch and working on tractors and all that stuff. So I didn't really get a lot of great guidance as a youth. And so I just assumed that that's what I was supposed to be was a farmer. And so I went to UC Davis in Northern California, which has got a good ag school. But my family was always always talked a lot about food. Food was always very important to us. Meals were very important to us. So I've always been really kind of into it from that regard. And so it all feels natural that my entire career has basically been in food and beverage. I feel like that's a pretty common entry point for a lot of people. It's like when you start having kids, you start worrying about what allergens are in their food, or even if it's like one of our clients makes three organic, they make a bunch of organic skincare products. And and the reason was their child, Alice, had some sensitivities. So they had to just find organic products without a bunch of scents and other things in there that had allergens related to it. And they couldn't find it. So they and they started realizing how kind of wild west the natural products industry in terms of like skincare and beauty were without a lot of regulation. And they realized there was very few real companies out there like certified organic and other things like that. So they started a company to to solve that problem. But I think a lot of people enter from that path of having children 
It's really interesting. Yeah, we see that in all of our research. Yeah, same thing. That's the entry point. Yeah. And a funny thing you were saying too is about, you know, organic was just getting started. One of the ways I describe organic to people that aren't super familiar with it is that it's basically take your grandparents and previous, like everyone in their generations before, it was all organic. They just didn't call it that because we hadn't invented all this chemical farming yet. So it's always funny when when people see it as this like hippie, weird, dirty kind of thing. But in reality, it's just the way every animal or every species has been eating since the beginning of time until not that long ago. (laughs) Until industrial agriculture, yes, 100%. (laughs) Absolutely. Okay. So fun little story in in that background. So I know that after college, you spent a little time working in Bank of America and then you ended up shifting into this uh, Berkeley MBA program, which I think I heard an interview where you said that it took you a couple of times to get in, which is interesting, but you started down this like executive leadership path. So I was curious, like you started out thinking you wanted to go into farming and then at some point you got into business and then somewhere in there you decided you still wanted to stay in food, but instead of going into farming or doing something like that, you decided to go into more executive leadership. So like what was so exciting about that specific MBA program and where did your dream shift from farming to leading food businesses? Yeah. So when I was, before I went back to business school, I was a banker and I worked in the wine industry and that was a great experience for me because I learned a lot about P&Ls and businesses and balance sheets and raising money and all that stuff. Very important things to learn. But the thing that I was most fascinated by was some of the wineries I worked with would would sell a bottle of wine for, let's say, $9.99, and it had these grapes in it. And the exact same bottle of wine with the exact same grapes, but with a different label or brand on it, they'd be able to sell at a higher price, like $19.99. <laughs> And it always amazed me that they, so that was my first exposure to brands and marketing. And so I was like, this is really interesting. And I wanted to go back to business school to do two things. One, to have like a, a logical career break from banking, right, into something new. And MBA was a way to do that. But the thing that drew me to Berkeley was the values of that program. I mean, it was overtly about social mission and entrepreneurship and building companies that were going to make a positive difference in the world. And that's the way they talked about the program way before that was kind of hip, I guess. And now it's very mainstream. It's every program talks about that. And so I wanted to go there so bad. It took me three times, actually. <laughs> I had a lot of fun as an undergrad. So. <laughs> Do you know why you got rejected the first two times? Oh, I'm sure it's because like my test score wasn't high enough or my work experience wasn't long enough. Or maybe they didn't feel sorry enough for me, but I got more and more experience. (laughs) And finally, the admissions director there, I know her by name. Her name was Fran Hill because I always like shout her out like, thanks, Fran. You changed the trajectory of my life by letting me in. (laughs) They always laugh, actually. Like, obviously, I did really well at Berkeley as a student, you know, and since then. And so anytime I talk to those folks, I go, you realize you guys like denied me <laughs> two times before you let me in. They always laugh about it. <laughs> so that was yeah. um, a good pivot point for me to like, to learn more about marketing, learn about all these other things, learn about venture capital and entrepreneurship in, you know, like in a textbook right. way. And then between my first and second year there, I joined up with some people that I had worked with in the wine industry and we were starting a food company and it was my first really food startup. And so I joined that full-time after my MBA program. I'm pretty sure I was the only 
person joining a food startup at Berkeley that year. Now there's many, many that do and for many other high programs. But anyway, that's how I got started in the food business. And it's basically been on that path ever since. Nice. Yeah, that's the same reason I keep looking at like the Stanford MBA program, even though I realize like an MBA would probably not, since I don't work in corporate and there's, I'm not trying to be the CEO of a, a giant corporation or anything like that. I realize it might not be the best use of my time and or money, but like there's something interesting about the more kind of social impact angle that like Berkeley or Stanford kind of take on some of their programs. So I hear you there. Uh, cool programs. Nice. So yeah, thank you, Berkeley, for <laughs> finally getting their wits about them and accepting yeah, you. Me. It is kind of funny how how that works out. It, re- it really is. Yeah, it, it really is. I encourage like, I think graduate studies in business is can be really valuable to people in their career and mainly because it just expands your horizon and exposes you to lots of things, ideas that you'll never, ever see. But there's, it's a great experience. I enjoyed it. I would do it again. And, uh, but it was a big commitment. So Yeah, absolutely. I, I keep thinking about doing it anyway, just for fun, even though I've been self-employed for like 13 years. And, and again, don't plan to like necessarily go into corporate, but I keep wanting to do it just for the fun of it, like to challenge myself, to learn something new, to meet new, interesting people. But in the interim, instead, I, I've been doing a lot of other programs like the Seth Godin marketing seminar or the 10,000 small businesses kind of growth accelerator program or anything I can get my hands on where I'm kind of in the mix with other people who have different businesses than mine and might bring a different perspective and I could learn something from them and maybe pass a little bit of my wisdom on to them. And it's it just creates such a fun environment of like collaboration, but also co-learning, I guess. And I feel like you learn so much by just seeing how other people approach things. Yeah. Like, it's fascinating. Yeah. Lifelong learning is like my philosophy and we'll get to, I'm sure some of the like leadership stuff, but like one of my philosophies is like always that there's a lot of other people that always know a lot more than me. And I just want to learn from them and expose myself to them and bring them in and um, work with them and learn from them and expose our team. And it's a great way to think about a business because you can really open doors that you didn't even know existed by, by being open to new knowledge and new insights. So learning forever, like there's no such thing as being done learning. You got to keep learning. Absolutely. That's a big part of why this program is called Evolve CPG as well as my design studio is called Modern Species because we, we believe that we all need to constantly be learning and growing and changing and evolving and adapting to the current business climate, the current environmental climate, or, you know, whatever else is facing us right now. It's, there's always a new challenge around the corner. It's one of my favorite things about business ownership or or leadership is that right when you think you've got it solved, (laughs) there's something around the corner like COVID that pops up and throws, turns everything on its head. So you've got to constantly be learning. And to your point, my favorite way to learn is through like collaboration or, kind of learning by working alongside other people, which is a big part of why I'm always building community or collaborating with other folks on projects, just because, again, you learn so much more from seeing how other people do things or what perspective they bring or what toolkits they bring or what strategies they bring. And then, you know, you can find interesting, innovative ways to work that into the way you work as well. It's so much fun. Plus, you know, by the cl- collaboration method of learning, you also do something cool along the way, like launch a cool project, like create a class together, like whatever else it is. It's a lot of fun. Nice. Okay. So we won't spend all the time necessarily talking about Annie's, but I know you're pretty well known 
from your time at Annie's as kind of the CEO, but then also moving into taking the company public and then joining General Mills after they you led the acquisition with General Mills, joining the General Mills team, and then leading like Annie's, Cascadian Food, Muir Glen, and Epic, kind of the whole division of General Mills, which that's a long journey, I think 17 years in the making from when you kind of joined Annie's to kind of moving off and going on this new direction. So we won't spend all the time talking about Annie's, but I'm sure everyone out there is wondering, along those 17 years, across all that scale, across acquisitions, going public, et cetera, what would you say are the three most important lessons that you learned in those 17 years? Oh, I learned so many lessons and I'll hit those in one second. But the thing that is interesting is whenever I mention to people that I was at Annie's, they very often will, if they don't know the history, they'll think about it as like, oh, that was such a wild success. And it was, it was kind of so easy. People see the, whether it's the acquisition <laughs> or whatever. And I always remind them like, well, it was really long and really hard. We almost went broke two or three times. <laughs> we made every mistake you could possibly yeah. make. You know what I mean? So it's a journey of learning. And the three things that pop into me that are most important. One is I learned, like when I graduated from business school, I think in retrospect, I was probably like kind of that vintage, like obnoxiously arrogant, like MBA student that thought I knew a lot. Right. And yeah, although I was probably nice, but still, but I still have <laughs> a little of that. And I think I learned pretty early that like the key to success is in any of these businesses is 100% about the people. And a key element of that is a leader recognizing that you don't know everything. And what you really need to do is find people who are way smarter than you to compliment you and to just surround yourself with people who are better at things than you are, and then figure out how to get them to all work together toward a common vision. So having the best team, attracting the best team, making sure that, you know, if I'm sitting at a table and we have an hour long conversation and I come out of it going like, well, I had the best ideas or I knew all, like there was no, nothing new, then I've then wrong on me. I've got the wrong team. Like I should be going like, whoa, mm, unbelievable. Yeah. Like, and so surround yourself with the best team, get the best team in early and people who can scale what's needed in a company going from zero to five, five to 25, 25 to 200. There's very few people that can scale from the head of marketing or the head of whatever from that to multi hundred millions. But there are people who you need in the future that you don't have now. You need to just constantly think about that. So that's the number one big bucket. Number two big bucket would be more about like personal leadership and like tone and managing for like stability. And so what I mean by that is entrepreneurship is such a crazy thing. And in the same day or in the same week, you can have something amazing happen in your business that makes you want to dance on the table and like post on LinkedIn about it and call your investors and brag. And then at the exact same week or day or hour, you can have something tragic happen that is an existential threat to the business. And so what I learned, and I had to learn this, is you got to not get too high when things are going great. And you got to not get too low when things are really tough. As a leader, you need to kind of be, I think, like this. And the reason that's very important is because your team looks for you for stability and just wants that constant reassurance that no matter whether it's going good or bad, you're there and you guys are we're on the same mission together. So that was one thing I learned that's worked really well for me. 
And believe me, when I was a younger CEO, I wasn't good at that. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm good at that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the other thing is, I think for leaders to show up with just as their authentic self is sounds so basic, but you would be surprised how many leaders don't do that. They believe that they need to be perceived in a certain way or there's a power dynamic between them, their board, and their investors, or when they present publicly that they feel like they need to show differently than they really are. I think if you can, as a leader, like authentically grasp who you are and be that person all the time, it makes you much more likely to develop the kind of credibility and social capital with the teams you're working with and the investors you're working with to be successful. And so just show up as your authentic self and be comfortable with the fact that if some people don't like it too bad, it's okay. You, know, you don't have to work with them. Yeah. <laughs> work with the people yeah. who accept you. Especially if you're the leader, you get to decide. <laughs> exactly. So those are three things. I love yeah. a lot more, but those are the ones that keep coming up again and again as I think about it You know, over these years. Yeah, those are great insights. I'd like to break a couple of them down real quick. But one you mentioned is the success is the people, right? Like finding the right people, smarter than you, getting them aligned, et cetera. So how did you find those good people? Were you hiring for culture? Were you hiring for values? Were you hiring based on resume? You know, you hear things like hire slow, fire fast, and, and so on and so forth. But like, what were your methods? Like, how would you advise other people to like making sure they get the right person in the right seat? Yeah, well, so one truism throughout my career, which is that anytime I've compromised on culture because I needed the skill set and that's the person we needed to bring in because we had something that had to be done every single time that's not worked. So to me, you have to hire for culture and fit. And by the way, hiring for culture and fit doesn't mean sameness. It means like, actually, I love diverse people of diverse, you know, backgrounds and experiences and ideas and ages and ethnicities and all that. You don't have to be the same to be a cultural fit. You have to just be respectful of others and listen and like work well together and also be aligned with the mission that the company has and the things we're trying to do as a company and be driven by that primarily. So for me, it's always a combination of culture has to be there, like the fit, as I just mentioned. But it's also about where you are on the curve. Like, as I mentioned earlier, like the skills required to do zero to 5 million are very different. And the person that will be successful in a functional role at that level is often very different from what it takes to be in a scaling organization going 100 million up. Like, you want to find people that can do it, but you need to recognize that it's just very different. The jobs are very different. And so what I always try to think about is what does the business need today? And what is it in this, whatever area it is, and what is the business going to need two to three years from now as we scale from X to Y? And do I believe, am I hiring far enough ahead to make sure that I can do today, but I can get to tomorrow? And so that's the biggest thing that I think about when I'm looking to hire. And I've never, I just say, I have used recruiters, but very rarely. The vast majority of people I've hired have been through networks, talking to people. LinkedIn's been a great one for me as that platform has really evolved. But like just knowing 
not necessarily hiring people that I've worked with before, although that's a great way to do it too, because you know them and you know the fit, you know their strengths and weaknesses, but more just like having a good network and just staying out there and close to people and spreading the word when you're looking for something and just being patient. You know, I'm not, I think there is sometimes can be something to the higher, slow and fire fast thing. But to me, that diminishes the employee and makes employees almost like if you, if you believe that's the way to do it, you're basically giving yourself a crutch to be crappy at what you should be good at, which is evaluating <laughs> talent and bringing people onto your team. So if the leader hires um, somebody and then believes that they're out as they can fire them fast, that's not aligned with my value set. Like I've rarely, I've probably done that once in 20 years and it's because I made a huge mistake not because of anything with respect to the employee themselves. I just picked somebody who wasn't right. But so I think you got to hire carefully and smart, but you got to be committed to making it work for that person too, because they're making a big leap to come to your company. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that you said all that. Cause I was literally just having conversations on, on LinkedIn about this, like hire slow fire fast. And this idea, like you were saying about hiring for quote unquote culture or sameness, because those are relatively discriminatory practices. That's why like tech companies often have such bad company culture, quote unquote, is because they hire a bunch of people who like hanging out, drinking light beers and playing ping pong all day or whatever. And that, and that excludes certain people who would be really good employees, but just don't fit in that culture. So one book that I like is called The Traction, Getting a Grip on Your Business or something like that. But they outline this idea of hiring more for values than culture, which I like that because like you said, you want people who are in line with the mission, who maybe come from different backgrounds, but believe in the same things and can bring their diversity to the team, which is super valuable, but at least be kind of pointing in the right direction. So I love that you mentioned all that because I, I do feel like that hire slow, fire fast can get you in trouble because maybe you hired the wrong person and it's your fault, or maybe it's the right person, but you put them in the wrong spot, or maybe they just need to like have better management to like make sure they find their space in the company. Right. So yeah. I, I love all the points that you just made there. Yeah. When you hear, when you hear people say that, and I'm glad that you mentioned it and we're spending a minute on it because when you hear people say that and you, the, the kind of leaders that talk like that oftentimes are the kind of leaders that are not prioritizing the development of their people and the investments in their people and the commitment. Like when you get it right, then you've got the right team and the right people. It's just unbelievable what can happen in a positively. And I just think that this like historical kind of corporate mindset of people as chattel and easy to hire, easy to fire diminishes the kind of values we should be bringing to work where we're really trying to lift each other up and to be successful together. And I'm much more loyal than that. And I'll stick longer with somebody to make it work, maybe to a fault, but I think that's the right way to think about it. <laughs> yeah. I hear you there. I'm giggling just because I feel like I'm the same way in that I, I maybe sometimes give people too long of a rope, by which I mean, when I'm doing like a 360 review and getting feedback from my team, they do talk about how I may be like a little too patient and a little too empathetic at, at times. And I need to make quicker decisions or, or, you know, with whether that's clients or with team members or something like that. But I do believe that everyone has a role to play. It's just, you got to find 
the right place for them to play that role, whether it's with my company or a different company, or whether it's in this position or that position, they're going to thrive somewhere. So it's not always about it's the wrong person. It's sometimes just about you got to take the time to figure out where they fit in best. And once that clicks, like you said, wow, the power of people just explodes at that point. But you got to have the patience to get them in that right spot. Otherwise, you're just treating people like commodities. And if people are your number one resource, which in most businesses today they are, then treating them like a commodity is just going to mean that you're constantly hiring and training new people, which is really expensive. And another thing you touched on uh, showing up as your authentic self, I really like that too. I'm curious, do you feel like (laughs) that was easy for you your whole career or is that something that you grow into? Because my, my guess would be leaders start out thinking they should be like that leader in the magazine or this leader in this movie or whatever, and then eventually just gain that confidence to be like, okay, I don't have to be liked by everyone or whatever. I'm just going to be me all the time. Is that something that you it came natural to you or did you find your way into it? Oh, I definitely grew into that. There's no question. I think the path that you just outlined is very common and I was no different. Like you see people model leadership behavior, whether it's CEOs or, you know, presidents or politicians or whatever, you see that and, you know, you think that emulating some of those ways that they're doing things and communicating is right until you go on your own path and try to figure out what it re- really works for you. I think when you have a combination of like successes and failures, like, and they're both important, like success is great. Everybody loves talking about success, but when failure is you know, arguably in some ways more important because you learn from it and you gain the self-confidence and the, I think like resilience and strength, like overcoming failure. And, and so I think that, I evolved into it and now, you know, obviously my, the last 10 years or so at Annie's and certainly what I'm doing now, like I honestly don't really care what people think about, you know, how I do. I like, I am who I am and I believe the things I believe I'm not perfect. I try to do things the right way. If people like that, great. If they don't like it, I'm okay with that too. You know, you can't please everybody and, and I don't try to anymore. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, that's such an important lesson because the more you can show up as the only version of you, the better off the world will be, the better off you'll be. But there's just so much pressure all the time from, you know, entrepreneur, Inc. Magazine, like whatever. You see all this this press covering the 20-something-year-old that's a billionaire or the seven successful habits of all these CEOs and, and so on and so forth, which may only work for that one person, but all these people just try to like imitate or copy or try to be whatever the press is talking about. And then they fail to be their, their, their true selves. So I think it's partly like a cultural problem, but also probably like a maturity thing. Like eventually you just fail enough or succeed enough or, or just kind of eventually learn what you're all about then, and you get more comfortable being yourself over time. It's something I, I feel like I'm still learning to be over time. I did read a stat that said something like, um, the people who are successful entrepreneurs usually are on their second or third or something business and usually in their 40s, which is contrary to this concept that the media portrays of these like 20-something-year-old billionaires where if if you haven't made something yourself by the time you're 30, you're, you've failed, right? It's, it's often like those are the learning years. <laughs> you don't really crush it until you're in your 40s. So I think that's reassuring. Yeah, it is reassuring. Yeah, and it's growth, you know, like growth comes from experience and success and failure. Like 
we just said. So I'll take it any day. Great. So those were some awesome lessons learned from that first phase of your career. And I feel like at that point, <laughs> you could have easily, you know, retired and just been like an investor or mentor or something like that. You'd, you'd kind of proven yourself. You've probably made some money. You put a big impact on the world growing Annie's and, and some other brands through General Mills. But instead of just calling it a day, you got super excited and decided to build a brand called Once Upon the Farm with actress Jennifer Gardner. So I'm, I'm just super curious, what was so exciting about this business that both you and Jennifer got like so pumped that you had to dive into it? Yeah, it was. It's a lot of things. But in 2015, um, this company was started in down in San Diego by Ari Ross and Cassandra Curtis, who were two entrepreneurs who were like Cassandra was solving her own problem. Like you mentioned before, that's what a lot of entrepreneurs do, right? She wanted baby food that was, you know, much, much more nutritious. And then the thing she could buy in the store, she didn't find it. So she started making it herself and selling it and her and Ari got together. And so I became an investor in that business when it was really tiny, very early. And I was always interested in at Annie's. I sat through like millions of like consumer panels and studies and like, and we knew that like moms and dads were looking for better, cleaner food alternatives and organic was one way to manifest that as it became mainstream. But when you really look at it and you go like, like, is it really nutritionally a lot better, right? Does it have, you know, less sugar? Does it have, you know, phytonutrients? Does it have, you know, the right balance of things that kids need? And technologies were changing. And in our business, Once Upon Farm uses a thing called HPP, which is basically, instead of heat, we use pressure. So like pressure per square inch, that's like sticking something at the bottom of the Marianas Trench, like in the ocean, like the deepest part of the ocean. And that gives us um, a little bit of a shelf life, but the product's never submitted to more than 40 degrees of temperature. And so it opens up the potential to do things in fresh food that were really interesting. And so when Jen was interested in the business because she's just an unbelievable advocate for children and through her more than a decade of work, working with Save the Children, working with kids in rural poverty and just on educational issues and like really focusing on children, she wanted to do something in the food business that did that. She'd been looking for a decade. And so we kind of collided at the same time and we're like, hey, we had this great conversation about, you know, the challenges about getting kids nutrition, the things that are out there um, that shouldn't be out there. And we basically just decided, hey, if Ari and Cassandra will have us in this business together, let's just do this together. And it turned into like a high five moment. And what's amazing about it is, you know, so, so to me, there was two things. One was like the personal challenge. There's always this like self doubt you have, like, you know, was that, did I just get lucky at Annie's? Like, could I? <laughs> Do that or like, you know, can I do it again? You know, there's that little thing that's there. It's like the competitive side of me, like self-doubt going like, I wonder if I could do that again. But the other part was really on the values and mission of the business. Like if you look at kid food in the U.S. in particular, and it's like many, many billions of dollars, it's also just a mountain of sugar and a mountain of calories and and that's what our kids are eating. And so is there a way to like make a positive impact on that and dent that and change the trajectory of that? Because we know what that does 
as kids palates develop when they're not only just babies but young kids like it changes the way they engage with food their entire life and we know what the long-term impacts of that because there's a lot of research out there about it so the idea of, of doing that in a fast growth startup with Jen and Ari and Cassandra was just too exciting to pass up. I just had to do it. And it was, it's been a wild ride, like much, much faster growth than I ever had at Annie's much bigger ambition early on than we ever had at Annie's and lots of like close calls. And just, it was like, it's been, it's been crazy, really fun. That's awesome. Yeah. It was, uh, cause you could have obviously just been stayed an investor or joined the yeah. board or something yeah. like that to make an impact, but that totally yeah. makes sense. It's like that, even at the stage that you're at that imposter syndrome or that like questioning <laughs> yeah. of like, Hey, I did it once in this category or in this category, like, could I do it again? That kind of intellectual curiosity or that drive for a challenge that totally makes sense. That's why I would probably keep jumping, jumping back in over and over again is just to like, keep trying something different and, and not necessarily proving yourself, but like proving to yourself that yeah, you can still kind of learn and grow. So you mentioned that it's been a wild ride and faster growth. Where do you feel like that faster growth has come from? Is it just the right time for, with the right product? Is it because of your past experience that helps you skip a few steps or, or maybe were you more well-funded from the get-go? Like what, what do you feel has contributed to that? it's a combination of things. There's no question that it's about like timing is a big part because when I first got to Annie's in 1998, um, it was a small company in Wakefield, Massachusetts. And it was a great uh, CEO named Paul that was running it. And I was kind of more of an investor and involved in really helping them vision the business, but organic products, you couldn't find them in grocery stores. You, If you did find them in a grocery store, they were over in a little tiny you know, hut at the back of the store, like where all the weirdo hippies shopped, right? And <laughs> and that's the way they thought about it almost. And so, but now healthy eating is so mainstream that if you deliver a product that is mainstream accessible and it's great, it can just get a lot bigger, a lot faster. So that was part of it. The second was definitely, you know, my experience, obviously Jen stature and her ability to generate billions and billions of impressions and talk about the brand has been helpful. Our credibility has allowed us to raise a lot of capital. So we've had a lot of advantages of being in the right timing with, you know, some credibility that allowed people to lean into what we were trying to do here. And it also helped us attract a really great team, like the team we have here. And the, every person who's touched this business, even the ones that are not here with us now, and there's been some transitions, like they've all made a huge impact and they've been incredible. And we've just grown so fast as a result of it. So it's all those things. Nice. Okay. And on, on the capital side, uh, there's so much, so many conversations going on right now with potential recessions or inflation or cost of goods going up, et cetera, that capital is starting to tighten up a little bit. So for those people listening who are maybe out there looking for capital and trying to figure out how to secure it. Do you feel like what helped you get capital was your, again, maybe your past experience or was it that the market was timed right? Was it the values? Like what was it that uh, attracted capital to this business relatively easily? You know, not that it's yeah. ever easy, but yeah, it's again, a combination of things, but it's the, idea that we were able to talk about kind of a white space, if you will, out in the marketplace mm, yeah. in kid foods that that was about better nutrition. It was about a company that was driving for positive social change and building a brand around that 
And so it could be big, it could be impactful, not guaranteed to be successful, but had a shot at success. And, and we also, you know, what I've learned and is you never get any of this stuff right, especially in the early stages. Like, you know, I know you've profiled James Richardson in his book before ramping your brand. And I, I like that book too. And one of the things that he mentions in there is like every startup is like a rolling experiment. And that is hundred percent true. Like, so there's things you believe about your business, your brand, things that you're going to put out there. They may or may not end up being true. You have to continually pivot and improve. And I think our investors knew that we were confident about what we we're going to do, but we were also not so confident that if it wasn't working exactly the way we wanted it to, they knew we were going to continue to pivot and learn and grow. And that's, I think, a very important thing for CEOs or company founders to understand that your investors are going to want to really feel confident about because nothing ever goes perfect. And, and I always think, you know, no matter I've been around long enough to be through some really easy funding environments, I'm talking easy relative, just like tons of capital looking to invest, right. And really bad, like recessionary times where everybody's hunkering down and institutional capital is like quote unquote tight. There's always funding out there for great ideas. And there may be like different valuations out there that people have. That's probably the biggest thing that'll change, but good ideas manage to get funded. And so just be resilient, just continue to believe in what you're doing, but also, you know, reflect the reality of the environment. We're in an environment now where, you know, if you walk in and talk to a, a venture fund about like, hey, I'm going to go from X to Y, and it's going to be this massive growth. And all I care about is growth. I don't care about bottom line. They're going to put the book down and you'll be the meeting will be over. You have to read the room and understand that like profitability and a, a strong business model that's credible is way more important now than it was a year ago, at least to the markets. Like that sounds silly because it should have been important then yeah. to you, but it, you know, <laughs> that's the way it kind of works. And so you have to really focus on those fundamentals more now, which makes it harder because not every business can actually put that case together in a credible way. And if you can, you're in a really a, a much better spot. Yeah. Okay. That's really great actionable advice. I love that. And one thing that I've personally loved seeing is that there's more and more capital out there that is values aligned. Companies like, you know, we've had Next World Evergreen on the show that, you know, has owns like Alter Eco and some other kind of strong B Corp brands like that. But there's a bunch of like regenerative investors kind of popping up, investing in either regenerative agriculture or regenerative brands. There's so many companies popping up supporting diverse companies like minority owned, woman owned, et cetera. So I'm loving that values are starting to come into capital as well. And speaking of which, you've with Once Upon a Farm, kind of similar to Annie's, you've carried over your commitment to organic, which I appreciate as an organic consumer. But you've also become a certified B Corporation, which is super cool. I'm also B Corp just finished my recertification like literally weeks ago, I think. So finally got through that, which is awesome. So my question is, what drives you to keep using business as a force for good? And what are some of like your personal core values that drives your decision making in business? Yeah. So the fundamental core value or like belief, I guess you should say that drives me is that it's a big, beautiful world, but there's lots of problems in it. And I don't believe that government alone is going to be able to solve them. I think business has to be part of the solution, whether you talk about climate or labor or like any of the you know inequality, all these issues, 
business can play a positive role. And so I think, you know, building brands that stand for really strong points of view around positive social change and social justice, and then growing those businesses in a responsible way that's aligned with that value set is very, it's a very powerful way to grow a business. You know, not only does it attract consumers that think that's a great idea and they want to vote with their dollars, which is great. It also helps attract employees that want to, that want to be part of that kind of a mission. And so to me, you know, the emergence of B Corp as a certification is an awesome thing. And it, I wanted to be a B Corp at Annie's and I was never really able to get it done. And the reason was because it came on kind of later about the time we were thinking about going to be a public company and mm, yeah. getting my investors comfortable that we could be a B Corp and that wouldn't screw up a public offering was hard, you know, and so when I came over here to Once Upon a Farm, I'm like, we're going to be B Corp day one. And we, we got certified right away. But last year, we actually went one step further. We actually converted to a public benefit corporation. So we're a Delaware public benefit corporation. And the reason that's important is, for those of the listeners who don't know, is like, by law, a corporation really has only two. If you look at the, the articles of incorporation of a standard company and the historical view of corporations, they can't break the law. And their mission is to make money. Those are the two things, right? Like in a public benefit corporation, which is very much aligned with the, the things that a B Corp does and the things that their value and that they build, you can actually bake those things into your articles of incorporation. So our core values around expanding access, kid nutrition, you know, positive social change and everything are embedded in our articles of incorporation. So if we ever went public someday or we were ever acquired and somebody acquired the business that they would have to honor those because they're in our articles. So when we make decisions about, Hey, we could be more profitable or we could go into this part of the business that would make us not be able to invest in the things that are aligned with our mission. You know, we can't be sued for that. Like it's there. That's what this company's about. And so it gets back to like you said, there's investors out there that are interested in investing in, you know, positive change in the space there's also company formats that are like that. And what's cool about it is there's no hiding it. There's no confusion about what this company stands for. It's in our charter. <laughs> it's right there. And so if you want to be an investor in this business, you have to accept that and support it. And we have very values-aligned investors who have supported us all the way. And that's very important. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I totally agree with you as well in that business being a powerful force. Like there's some things that government's great at. I've done a lot of work in nonprofits as well. By work, I mean like helped lead nonprofits, sat on boards, et cetera. And there's a lot of great stuff that nonprofits are doing. But what I feel is the most powerful thing about more of a benefit corp type of model, a social impact or just impact-driven business, is that it's the most sustainable model, by which I mean you're able to fund your impact off of the goods or services you sell. Whereas nonprofits that are, they're divided between doing the work and then having to go find a way to raise some money to go do the work. And then a lot of that money maybe goes to operations or whatever. Again, there are time and places for that. And then government's the same thing, right? Like they can do so much, but like there's, you know, partisan kind of politics and different things like that that can slow things down. But then also they're kind of reliant on taxes and other things. So business though, it can literally bake the impact they want to make 
into the business model, into the products, into the way they operate, into everything, the mission, the messaging, everything. So it's sustainable in that it funds itself, which I particularly love. Granted, doing business the right way is a little bit more expensive sometimes and and a little bit limiting compared to just like an extractive model where you can cut corners, cut costs, underpay people, et cetera, to make a profit. But I feel like it's, in my personal opinion, the most powerful way to make an impact is by running an impact-driven business. So I love that you mentioned that. I totally agree. And also, like, if you go out and talk to consumers, you'll see that for many years, the consumers have been moving in this direction too, and they want to vote to support brands that are doing the right thing. And that's increasing with every generation, and it's becoming more and more and more powerful. And so it really is a great way to think about it. The sustainability of that cycle is hugely important. Yeah. And I I do think the original purpose of a business was to solve a need, solve a problem, right? And getting back to like literally solving that problem instead of the problem being people want more money in their pockets. It's like literally the world, the community needs healthier food for their children. Like that's the problem you're solving and you can actually generate a business model out of it. And like you said, bake values into the company. So no investor or other kind of influencer can come in and change that, which I love the fact that you kind of went a a step above and became a public benefit corp. That's great. So beyond the B Corp and the organic, I know that you also have a purity promise and a program giving meals to kids. Can you tell us about some of those other kind of mission-driven programs you got going on? Yeah. So the in a company like ours, you have a set of core values and you have a vision for the impact that you want to have. And what you do is you develop your brand and your programs in a way that are very much reflecting that and supporting it. And so Purity Promise is really around, we were one of the first brands in baby food, if not the first brand that was clean label product certified. If you look out there at the press around baby food and the concerns that parents have about heavy metal content and lead and arsenic and all that stuff, we've submitted our products to rigorous testing for 400 things you don't want in your kid's food and have been doing that. And so that's one of our commitments. And we've even elevated that and have adopted kind of more of a European standard with a thousand day promise of some products that we developed that really are a combination of the right nutritionals, plus all that testing and rigor around clean that we know our parents want. So that's part of it. And then on the the impact side, Jen, as I mentioned before, was drawn to this brand and business because of the potential positive impact on kids. And she had a long experience with Save the Children really as their U.S. ambassador effectively, like out there lobbying, you know, sitting in Congress, doing the things necessary to change policy for the benefit of kids. We partnered with Save the Children on a thing called the A Million Meals. And effectively, what we're doing is we're basically setting up a set of incentives in in our products and commitment to deliver a million meals to kids in underserved communities that need it by 2024. And it's a big commitment for a relatively small company. We'll make a much bigger commitment in the future, I'm sure, as we get bigger and bigger. But but those are the things that like keep the brand that remind us and the brand aficionados, the people that follow us, that we really are trying to make the world a better place through what we're doing and drive positive impact that way. And I'm sure we'll have other things and programs in the future that are very focused on that as well. It's like continuing to manifest our mission and make a difference because that's why we're here. Like 
you know, do we want to have this company be successful and the investors and our employees make some, you know, get a financial windfall from it at some point for all their hard work, of course. But like, that is not the single most important reason like that we're here. Like we're trying to make a big difference in kid nutrition in the U S and that's the most exciting thing because if we can make that uh, make a change and show that you can build a business like that, a will make a lot of impact on our own, but B will change what a lot of other companies are doing to make their products better. And that will have a much bigger ripple impact. And that's what happened at Annie's, you know, one of those, Annie's one of the brands that made it a point that you don't need a bunch of artificial colors and chemicals in your food and preservatives. You don't need that to deliver great food. And now if you look across the kid food landscape, it's almost table stakes. Like people aren't using, you know, in many products are not using fake food colors and a lot of additives they used to. So I think that what we're doing in better nutrition has the same potential and that's what we hope to to do. That's I love it, especially because we're continuing to learn more and more about nutrition by understanding the biome or diving deep into regenerative agriculture or like you were saying, even with your HPP processing, knowing having more technology like that that doesn't cook all the nutrition out of food, for example. But one thing that I have a question on and maybe other listeners might as well, so I want to dig into it a little bit, is the 1,000-day promise. Why 1,000 days and kind of what's the basis of that? Is it that a lot of food, if you don't do things right from a purity standpoint or a processing standpoint, will lose their nutritional value? Or is it more about it'll go bad over time? Or or is no, it that really, toxins it, accumulate? Or how does that work? No, it's really about like there's a lot that's been written about What's the most formative time frame for a baby through kid in terms of their overall health and what they eat and the impacts it's going to have on their current development, their brain development, all of their palate development that's going to impact the rest of their life? And the first thousand days is really that most important time frame. Yeah, so we have a, a product called that's the first product that got this thousand day certification from Clean Label Project in the US. And it's, the products have, you know, a certain amount of vegetables. They have a certain amount of nutrition, and they're free of all of these other things, or at least the risk of all those other things is dramatically reduced because of all the testing and everything that we do. And so, those products are like the kind of products that are perfectly positioned to give moms and dads the best first entry for their kids. And it's a super exciting thing to see that develop. And I hope lots of other companies develop products like it in the U.S. and bring some of those you know, European standards here. It's pretty exciting to see that. Awesome. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. That makes a lot of sense and really cool that you're doing that as well. I've been hearing some buzz around regenerative products and other things around kind of one of the upcoming trends in food will be nutrient density. So I'm hoping that just means more conversations will happen around not just is it free of chemicals and stuff, but more around is it full of nutrition? Because <laughs> I think, you know, those are two different animals, right? So making sure we're keeping it free of stuff, but also full of stuff will be a good conversation moving forward. Another just thing I wanted to bring up is your meals for the children program. I know that some companies just like to donate product, like a buy one, give one kind of model, but you're partnering with Save the Children. So in those meals underserved, like is 
is some of that like you actually shipping product to children or is some of it just you giving a percentage of profits or something like that that goes towards other types of food that they're missing in their diet? Yeah, some of it is we're giving some product, but that's a small part of it. The bigger part of it is just financial contributions that we're making directly into Save the Children's Network through that allow them to deliver meals directly to kids in these rural communities that need them. They have a bunch of programs and delivery capabilities that allow that to happen. So it's really the financial engine of our business making contributions to them for that specific purpose. And we link it to kind of our business too. Like the more we sell, the more we do with a minimum commitment of getting to that million. And I'm certain, I don't know what exactly what our next objective will be beyond that, but we'll certainly raise the bar on ourselves. I have no doubt, you know, and do, do something bigger the next round. Great. That's awesome. I mean, it sounds like you're doing a lot, but since you do have a growth mindset and like you said, constantly evolving and learning, you'll continue to do more, which is amazing. And especially like with the B Corp model, one of the things they do is try to encourage you to continually improve, right? So it's not just about getting your minimum score, calling it a day and slapping that badge on your stuff, but it's you get your score and then you set goals for improvement. And I don't know the details of how this works, but a friend who does, Rob Sinclair, who does B Corp consulting through Conscious Brands, he says they actually make it like a little bit harder for you, each recertification to even get the minimum score. So it almost forces improvement into the system as well. So that's one thing that I, I do like about B Corp. It's not just like check a box and you're done. It's a process. You keep going through it. So yeah, so lots of great stuff. You're doing a lot of amazing things. Maybe as a way to wrap up, I know you've had some success and you're driving some good growth with Once Upon a Farm. You've learned a lot. We already talked about some of what you learned at Annie's, but if you're kind of putting yourself in the shoes of other people trying to grow some sort of impact-driven brand, what bits of advice, it could be one big piece of advice or a couple pieces of advice, what advice would you give people who are trying to focus on impact while growing their brand? Yeah, so we've talked around the essences of a lot of it already, and it's basically like try to articulate for yourself as you're visioning what you want this brand to be, what is that positive impact you want to make? What's the problem that you want this business to try to help solve, whether directly through its products or indirectly through the work and the affiliations and the partnerships you'll build around the business, and then build that promise into the DNA of the brand. Again, like you said, to make the direct explicit connection between if this business works and consumers like and buy this product, they know that this is what we're going to go do together. And I think that's the a really, really important thing to do from the very early days of a brand is to really be committed to that. And And you have to build a sustainable business model, right? By definition, it's not just about, you know, dropping a press release saying, hey, here's the things we care about. You actually have to build the pieces that will drive that sustainable model and impact. And so I always think that's the most core foundational piece I can give to anybody who's thinking about building a brand that wants to make a difference. Be really clear early on, articulating your mission, vision, and values. That's a lesson I learned at Annie's for years. We hadn't articulated those as clearly as we needed to. When we finally did, the business just took off. It was unbelievable. And when I came over here to Once Upon a Farm, Jen and Ari and Cassandra and I, literally the first thing we did in the first week we were working together, we sat down and wrote those things. And those have guided us all along. And that 
process of writing all that was all about what do we want this business to do? And then starts the conversation about, okay, how are we embedding that into our, the product that we actually make that we sell and, that, and how we talk about it. So that's, that would be the biggest piece of advice I give. That's great. And I love that you mentioned kind of baking it into your DNA. Cause I think as mission becomes more popular in the business world, there's a lot of businesses out there who are going about business as usual, maybe selling crappy products that the world doesn't need or having an extractive model with their business where they're underpaying their team members, so their CEO or executives or whatever can get huge bonuses, et cetera. There's like a lot of bad business models, but then they try to make it better, <laughs> sort of like by quote unquote greenwashing, by then deciding we're going to donate, you know, a half a percent of our profit on this one thing to this cause and look how good we are, right? But it has often nothing to do with the company, nothing to do with the product, nothing to do with the brand. It's just this slapped on mission. So I love the idea of focusing on your impact by building into the DNA of your brand. And it makes me almost think of logic models, which in the nonprofit world, they use that to articulate, we're going to do these kind of activities and create these outputs so that we get these outcomes. Kind of you document that so you can get foundation money or donations, grants, et cetera. It almost feels like that for a brand, right? Like if you can get your brand logic model written up that we're going to do these kind of products and we're going to have this kind of impact and here's what we're going to do with our profits, et cetera, to continue that impact. I think that will help kind of articulate it a lot. And then another thing that popped into my head is I think some companies keep telling themselves rather than baking their impact into the business, they think someday we're going to make an impact when when we're profitable or when we're at scale or when we're whatever, thinking it'll be easier <laughs> when they're at scale. But you can correct me if I'm wrong because I've never run a company the size of companies that you've run. But I think if you bake it in from day one and it's actually part of your business model where it's built into your financial metrics and everything, then scale will be easier uh, or implementing it at scale will be easier than if all of a sudden when you're at scale, you need to retroactively go back and weave this into your cost of goods and everything. It's going to be really hard to convince your board or whoever else to decrease your margins so that you can add this mission in. But if it's baked in from the beginning, you'll be much better off. I couldn't agree more. And in fact, like when I talk to other entrepreneurs that are like struggling with like how to think about this, what I always say is, you know, your impact today on the size of your business, it doesn't have to be big. It's like acorns grow into oak trees, right? Start. Like, in fact, we did this at Annie's. Like, we started our partnership with a thing called Food Corps, which was basically a nonprofit group that's working in schools and like educating kids about real food. We were really small when we started that. And then every year we said to ourselves, it's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger as we grow. And by the end, we were a huge funder of that nationally. And, you know, another example at Annie's is like we started doing environmental and sustainability scholarships, like real scholarships for students to study in these areas. And I remember the first year it was like five grand or 10 grand. And then by the time I left, it was like, I think $150,000, $200,000 a year that we were doing. And so like, Start it early and then grow it with your business is 100% the right way to do it. And that's the exact approach that we've taken to everything that we're doing here. And I encourage, don't wait. Start. It doesn't have to be big. Don't apologize for the impact on a, you know, if you're a brand new business, if the impact is just a couple small things in your community, that's cool. If it's aligned with your vision and your mission, your values, and 
your ambition is to grow and grow that impact, awesome. You're doing it right. Absolutely. Love that. And for those of you looking to kind of like start small, but be able to scale it like an accessible way that I know of is 1% for the planet. It's a good membership for that because, you know, you're committing 1% of your revenue, which is bigger than like a percentage of your profits often. But the benefit is when you're a small company, that 1% is relatively small. It's just relative to the size of your company, right? But if you start now, you build it into your model and you can scale along with it. So I'm a big advocate of that program as well. But with that said, I know we're more or less out of time here and I appreciate all the wisdom you're sharing and I'm excited to continue watching your journey with Once Upon a Farm and see how you continue to scale your impact there. So thanks for taking some time out of your busy schedule to share some of your wisdom and inspiration with the community. I really appreciate your time and thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. It was great talking to you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about John or Once Upon a Farm, go to onceuponafarmorganics.com. Subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel for more innovator interviews, expert advice, and leadership discussions. If you like this episode, leave a heart, thumbs up, or review, and share it with your colleagues. As an ever-evolving show, we also love feedback, so send us your thoughts or ideas for who we should talk to next to evolve at modernspecies.com. <laughs>